Psalm 3, 1 through 8. A Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, how many are my foes! Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, There is no salvation for him in God. Selah. But you, O Lord, are shield about me, my glory, and the lifter of my head. I cry aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. Selah. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Selah. The word of the Lord. All right. Good morning, everyone. My name is Davis Mooney. I am one of the pastoral interns here at Central West End Church, and one of the privileges of that is that I get to fill in for Eric every once in a while and preach. And so I'm excited to, to share with you all today this wonderful passage, uh, Psalm 3. We're in a series on the Psalms right now. It's called Psalms, the School of Prayer. And Eric has done a, a great job of setting that series up for us uh, over the past two weeks. But now we're going to start kind of a new part of that series where we're going to see how the Psalms help us to pray through a variety of human emotions. And uh, today we're going to start with fear in Psalm 3. So uh, let's pray together before we uh, dive into God's Word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to worship you this morning. We thank you for the preaching of your word. We pray that you would open our ears to hear it, uh, and I pray that you would open my mouth to, to preach your word and that you would um, bless our time as we look at your word together. We praise you and thank you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So one of my favorite uh, bands is called The Civil Wars. They're, they're not together uh, anymore, unfortunately, but back in like 2010 to 2014, they were a Grammy Award-winning duo. But their name is interesting, isn't it? It's the Civil Wars. Well, back in 2011, right before they, they won their first few Grammys, the New York Times wrote an article about them and asked about their name. How did they come up with their name? And Joy Williams, one of the members of the duo, said, It has nothing to do with the historical meaning. There's a great quote that says, Be kind, for everyone you meet is fighting a great battle. She goes on, every single person walking down the street is fighting a great battle, whether or not you can see it. The passage that we're going to look at today was written in the midst of a great battle, in the midst of a literal civil war. It was written by King David, who was God's chosen king over God's chosen people, the Israelites. God had appointed David as king, but as we see in the title of this psalm, Absalom, David's son, had risen up against him and David had to flee. He had to flee into the wilderness after his son takes the throne from him. And Eric actually talked about this a couple of weeks ago. And what we saw there is that uh, David is not responsible for Absalom's rebellion. But we also saw that he's not entirely innocent either. 
So before that, uh, David had committed adultery with Bathsheba and uh, had had her husband killed to cover up for his sin. And the Lord comes to David there, and he forgives David, but he also tells David that the, the sword will never depart from his house. And sure enough, just two chapters later, Absalom rises up against his father and takes the throne from his father. So what can we learn from this psalm, which David writes in that situation? Well, an author, Eugene Peterson, has a great quote. He says, The life of David is full of incidents like this. Everyone's life is. Not a palace coup for most of us, but conflict and failure and fear, love and betrayal, loss and salvation. Every day is a story, a morning beginning and an evening ending that are boundaries for people who go about their tasks with more or less purpose, go to war, love others, earn a living, scheme and sin and believe. I love that quote. Even in the midst of David's civil war, we can identify with him in our own wars and struggles. We have all faced conflict and failure and fear. And that's what we're going to see today, that in the midst of David's fear, he cries out to the Lord. Psalm 3 is a deeply honest psalm as David flees his home, fears for his life, and fears for the kingdom. And so too, in the midst of our battles, our smaller battles, we all experience fear. Sometimes we've messed up and we fear what the consequences of that will be. Sometimes other people around us have messed up and we fear what the consequences will be for them or for us. And sometimes we're just paralyzed by our fear and we wonder how a good God can help us, or can allow us to walk through fearful situations. But what we're going to see in this psalm is that God brings salvation and security to his people. And so we must rely upon him in the midst of our fears. And we see that in three ways in this psalm. We see that we're called to name our fears to the Lord, we're called to trust in the Lord, and we're called to wait for the Lord. So first we see that we're called to name our fears to the Lord, and we see where David does this in verses 1 and 2. And uh, the pastor, Tim Keller, he points out that here we see that David has two different time types of fears. First, he has a uh, kind of a real physical fear, and he also has kind of a deeper existential fear in verses 1 and 2. So we'll have a look at the real physical fear first. So in, in those first two verses, we see that David says many three times in those two verses. It's clear that David has lots of problems, and he has lots of enemies. These enemies are surrounding him. They want to take his life so that he can't come back and reclaim the throne in Jerusalem. And David's fear here is very legitimate. Those enemies are a, a threat to his life and to his well-being. And so it's perfectly rational that David would be afraid of those enemies. It's kind of like if you, uh, if you walk out into the street, you step out into the street, and you see a car barreling towards you, you're right to be afraid. Uh, that's perfectly rational. But second, we see that David has kind of a deeper existential fear. And we see this in verse 2 where David's enemies say that there is no salvation for him and God. What they're doing there, they're saying that God is abandoning him, and they're attacking his identity and his calling. They're attacking his relationship with the Lord. Uh, they knew that David was the chosen king, but then as soon as he messes up, they say, how in the world could the Lord ever forgive him? How could the Lord stick with him? And we actually see this in uh, 2 Samuel 16. This is recorded for us. Uh, as David is fleeing the city, this guy comes out to him and he says, Get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. That's some pretty strong language. 
As David is fleeing the city at one of the lowest points in his life, this guy comes out to him and he says, you worthless man, how can God ever forgive you? I feel that so much. Uh, When I mess up, I don't need someone to tell me that. When I mess up, I feel it. I think, how in the world could the Lord ever forgive me? And I do, either two, I do two things in that fear. Either I, I'm, I'm paralyzed and I'm, I'm afraid of my, I'm, I'm paralyzed in my fear and I don't want to do anything. I don't want to move because I'm afraid that I'm just going to mess it up further. Or on the other end of the spectrum, I just immediately get back to work. And I'm, I'm so afraid, I just have to do something to show the Lord that he can forgive me. But that's not what David does here. He brings his fear to the Lord. He brings both his real physical fear and his deeper identity fear to the Lord, and he names it to the Lord. He's not paralyzed by his fear, and he doesn't just hop into action drawing up a battle plan for how he's going to take back the throne. What he does is he cries out to the Lord, honestly naming his fears to the Lord. I listened to a TED Talk recently by the novelist Karen Thompson Walker on fear, it was really interesting. She said that so often we think of our fears as a weakness or something that we just have to conquer by having more courage. Uh, but she wondered what it would look like if we actually think of our fears as deeply imaginative stories that we tell ourselves. And uh, what the, she used the example of the whale ship Essex, which in 1819 was 3,000 miles off the coast of uh, Chile hunting for whales. And it was struck by a whale so catastrophically that the, the ship began to sink. And so the 20 sailors that were aboard the ship had to climb into their small lifeboats and watch their ship sink, and they had to make a decision. And they had three options. First, they could try to sail 1,200 miles or row their boats 1,200 miles to the Marquesas Islands, but they had heard, that they were, uh, they had heard a rumor that they were cannibals there. Second, they had, uh, the, the other option that they had was to sail 1,200 miles to Hawaii, but the captain of the ship knew that it was the stormy season, and so he was afraid that they would get blown off course. And then the final option that they had was the longest. It was to sail 1,200 miles south and hope that a stream of winds would pick them up and, and blow them to the coast of South America. But they didn't know how long that would take and if their provisions would last. Do you see the three stories that they're telling themselves in those three options? To be eaten by cannibals, to be battered by storms, or to face starvation. Well, ultimately, terrified of cannibals, they decided to take the longest route, which they thought was the the, the safest. But unfortunately, two months later, when the ten surviving sailors who hadn't starved to death were picked up by, uh, by passing ships... And a lot of the people who have studied the shipwreck have noted that uh, if the sailors, as soon as their ship started to sink, if they had gotten in their lifeboats and just uh, pointed to the Marquesas Islands, where their rumor about cannibals was completely false, they likely all would have survived. Now, I'm not saying that all of our fears are just irrational stories that we tell ourselves. I'm certainly not saying that. Those sailors were right to be afraid as they watched their ship sink. And David is right to be afraid as his enemies are surrounding him. But what David is doing here is he's naming his fears to the Lord and he's asking, what story do I listen to, Lord? He names his fears to the Lord and he says, should I listen to the story that my enemies will defeat me or should I listen to the story that you will save me, God? As we experience both types of our fear, our real physical fear and our deeper identity fear, we can name those fears to the Lord. We can bring them to the Lord. He wants to hear what we're afraid of, and he draws near to us in our fear. We don't have to bottle up our fear to just grit our teeth and bear it, and we also don't have to be paralyzed by our fear not wanting to move. What we can do is we can cry out to the Lord, 
in our fear. We can name our fears to him, and we can ask him to work. And as we do so, we'll also see that we can trust in the Lord. We see this, uh, well, we've seen that David has named his fears to the Lord, and now we see how David fears, uh, trusts in the Lord in the midst of his fear. And we see this in verses 3 through 6. The first thing we see in verse 3 is that but you at the beginning there. Uh, This is in direct and strong contradiction to the many many enemies that are lined up against David in verses 1 and 2. It's as if David is turning from the danger from his enemies, and he's turning to the Lord, and he's breathing a sigh of relief. But you, O Lord. And as he does that, he starts to name God's trustworthiness. The first thing he does is he says that God is a shield about him. Of course, this this suggests protection. God will shield David from his foes. He will protect him from his foes. But but notice what David uh, says about that shield. He says God is a shield about him. The preposition that he uses there literally means like around or roundabout. And I don't know about you, but that's a pretty interesting shield to me. Uh, One of the scholars that I read said that this isn't some dinky little handheld shield. No, this shield fully encloses David. It is full protection for the one who bears the shield. Next, David says that God is his glory. And the Hebrew word that he uses there for glory is, uh, comes from the same word that means weight. And so what David me- uh, talks about there, what he means there is that God has the most weight, the most glory in his life. We have to remember who's saying this. It's King David, a man who just a few days before this was on the throne in Jerusalem. And it would be so easy for David to think that the things that have the most weight or glory in his life are his political power, his army, or his vast wealth. But here, when all of those things have been stripped away, he says that God alone is his glory, that God gives him uh, his dignity and God has the highest value in his life. And then all of a sudden, uh, the psalm switches to the past tense. All the beautiful things that David said in verse 3 about God's trustworthiness were in the present tense. But now David switches to the past tense. He said he cried out to the Lord. And nearly every commentator that I looked at agrees that David starts to speak from past experience here. He can trust the Lord in this particular situation because he has cried out to the Lord in the past and he has already experienced God's deliverance in the past. David has cried out to the Lord before, and God has answered him. And God has not failed him, and so he won't fail him now. And so David knows that he can trust in the Lord. This reminded me of the prayers of an African-American widow that I met when I was in high school. Uh, my youth group used to, uh, used to volunteer with a, a ministry called Widow's Harvest Ministries in the Chattanooga area. And uh, we would go and we would serve these widows by kind of taking care of their basic home repair. We would do uh, mowing and painting and stuff like that. But then we always got to go and we got to sit in on their Bible study. And it was incredible. We may have been ministering to their household needs, but they definitely ministered to our spiritual needs. Uh, one particular day uh, in this Bible study, a widow began praying. And the first thing she prayed for was her knee. She had been experiencing chronic knee pain, and so she, she prayed that the Lord would, would heal her knee. And then she prayed that the Lord would send someone to fix her roof because it was leaky, and she had to sleep with buckets around her bed uh, when it rained. But then she started to do something incredible. She started to give thanks to the Lord. And she, she gave thanks that her knee pain was so severe the night before that it had woken her up. She gave thanks for this because it allowed her to spend time uh, in the Lord's presence, comforted by his presence, and to trust in his provision and give thanks for the provision that he had given throughout the day. It's pretty incredible. 
This woman had plenty of reason to fear, chronic knee pain and a leaky roof. But what she did was she cried out to the Lord and she trusted in him. She knew that a a healthy knee and a a firm roof were not the things that had the most weight or glory in her life. Those are, of course, good things, but they're not ultimate things. So she was able to cry out to the Lord and to to meditate on his provision in the past and to trust that he would uh, provide in the future. Now, I'm not saying that we just need to pray like David or we just need to pray like the widow in that story. But what we are called to do as we pray in the midst of our fears is we're called, <clears throat> we're called to trust in the Lord. He's a shield about us. He protects us, and he encloses us with his love and mercy. And he's our glory as well. And sometimes he strips us of what we think is our own glory to show us that he is our glory, that he alone has the most weight and value in our life. And this is actually just kind of basic Newtonian physics. Um, the, uh, the, everything has a gravitational pull. And the larger the gravitational pull, or the larger the object, the larger the gravitational pull. And so when the Lord has the most weight or glory in our life, everything else orbits around that. And when those good things are threatened, we can cry out to the Lord who has the most glory in our life, the most weight in our life. And as we do so, we can meditate on his trustworthiness. Sometimes all, it feels like all we have to hang on to is a memory of the time in the past when he's provided, but he doesn't change. He's provided before, and he will provide again. He may call us to walk in fearful situations, but we can walk with the knowledge that he will sustain us. We've seen that we are called to name our fears to the Lord, and we're called to trust in the Lord, and so next we're, we're, we're going to see that we're called to wait for the Lord. And we see this in verses 7 through 8. And this is the first time that uh, David actually asked God to do something for him. Uh, we see in verse 7 that David asked God to arise and to save him. Of course David would do that. He's already named his fears to the Lord. He's trusted in the Lord. And now he's ready to wait as the Lord acts on his behalf. He knows that he can't uh, face his fears on his own. And so he asks God to, uh, to be at work. And then he waits. And we see that uh, David addresses God a little bit differently here. Uh, he still says, O oh Lord, just as he has in, I think it's verses 1 and, and uh, 3. But then he goes on to say, O oh Lord, O oh my God. There's a deep intimacy here. It's as if uh, David is saying, <clears throat> well, and this is uh, in direct contradiction to what his enemies said about him in verse 2. They just said there is no salvation for him in God. It's a really generic way to say God. But here David says that God is his God. There's a deep intimacy here. It's as if D- David is saying, oh, my God, my father. <clears throat> and it's this intimate relationship that runs throughout the entire psalm. David knows that the Lord has bound himself to David in relationship, and so he knows that he can depend on God in this situation. Next, some of us might be a little uncomfortable with the language that David uses in verse 7. He asked God to strike his enemies on the cheek and to break the teeth of the wicked. It's uh, really strong, emotional, and even violent language. But we have to notice two things here about the language that he uses. First, David is expressing his true emotions to the Lord. He's being very open and honest in the midst of his fears. He's afraid of these enemies, and he asks God to protect him and to remove the threat. But the second thing that we have to see is that uh, the imagery that David is using here, uh, what he's doing is he's using the imagery, especially when he talks about breaking the teeth of the wicked, he's using the imagery of a, uh, of a predator hunting its prey. It's, uh, it's kind of like a lion. If a lion, uh, if its fangs have become flat and dull, it's no longer dangerous. It's been disarmed. 
And so what David is asking the Lord to do is to disarm his enemies, those, the, the people that have been saying false things about God, and he's asking the Lord to deliver him in the midst of his fears. And as he does, he knows that salvation belongs to the Lord. Again, we saw in verses 1 and 2 that David doesn't just jump into action as soon as he experiences this fear. But what he does is he trusts in the Lord to deliver him. <clears throat> he knows that God will save him and will deliver him. He knows that God may lead him into dangerous situations. He may lead him face-to-face -face with his, his enemies. And God may call David into action. But ultimately, David knows that salvation and deliverance belong to the Lord. God is David's glory, and he will be his deliverance too. And finally, David asked God to bless his people. And what he's talking about there is he knows that Absalom is not the rightful king. Uh, he, even though Absalom is David's son, he's a very, very violent and oppressive man. And David knows that God set him, David, on the throne to lead his people faithfully, to, uh, to lead his people according to God's will, and to love them, with, with, to reflect God's love to them. And Absalom isn't doing that. And so what David is asking God to do is he's asking God to pursue justice for his people. Uh, Tim Keller, again, he points out that the Bible tells us that the opposite of fear is love. So David knows that the Lord will save him, and he's willing to face his fears out of love for his people. One of the ways that David trusts in and waits for the Lord uh, in the midst of his fear <clears throat> is that he, he wants to be back in community. Fear has ruminated and stewed while he's been in exile away from his people. But now David is ready to see the Lord carry out justice in and through him, and he's ready to be back in community with his people. And so David waits for the Lord to deliver him. We, we all know what the, this waiting feels like. Uh, when I think of this waiting, I think of like Christmas Eve. Uh, when I was a kid, my sister and I would stay up as late as we could on Christmas Eve. And we would sit in their bed and we would play Monopoly as long as we could. And we didn't even know all of the, the rules of Monopoly, but we just had to have something to do to keep our mind off of the waiting for the morning. So we would finally fall asleep and then we would wake back up at the crack of dawn at like 6 a.m., but my parents had a rule for their own sanity that we couldn't come downstairs on Christmas morning until after 7 a.m. So we would go, we would wake up at 6, and we would go and we would sit on the top stair in the dark, just on the edge of the stairs, and wait. And we would keep each other company. Like, sometimes we would whisper about what we thought we were going to get that year. And then other times we would just sit there and just daydream together about, like, how we were going to enjoy our presence. We knew that those presents were at the bottom of the stairs. We knew they were there, but we had to wait until we could go and enjoy them. That's the closest I could think of uh, how David, I get to thinking about how David feels here. He's named his fears to the Lord. He's trusted in the Lord. He's asked the Lord to save him, and he knows that God will deliver him. And so he waits. <clears throat> he knows that God will bring him back into community with his people, and so he waits for the Lord to act on his behalf. We don't often think about it this way, but waiting, in our, in the, especially in the midst of our fears, can be an extremely prayerful activity. When we are, experience our fears, we're called to lay them before the Lord and to ask him to save us from our fears and to wait. And as we do, we can also meditate on his trustworthiness. We don't have to just push down our fears to pick up our own strength and get to work in the midst of our fears. And we also don't have to be paralyzed by our fears either. What we can do is we can lay them before the Lord, we can trust, and we can wait. 
There are stories all over the Bible of God calling his people to wait before he delivers them. I think of Abraham and Sarah who had to wait 24 years before they were given a son, or the Israelites who had to wait 400 years before God delivered them from Egyptian slavery, and then they had to wait 40 more years before they could go and enter the promised land. The Lord calls his people to wait all over the Bible, but the deliverance always arrives. And so as we wait for the Lord to deliver us from our fears, we can continue to pray and to wait and to meditate on his trustworthiness. And thankfully, as we wait, we don't have to wait alone. We saw that David is ready to be back in in community with his people. He knows that God will deliver him, and so he waits. He wants to be back in community. We saw that the opposite of fear is love. John 4, 18 says, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. As we wait, we're called to wait in community, to love those around us, and to be loved by those around us. In the midst of our fears, as we wait in community, we can see the ways that the Lord is at work in the lives of the people around us, and we can also remember that he's at work in our life as well, even in the midst of our fears, and even as we uh, wait for him to deliver us. So we can wait with others and, and, and be comforted, uh, comforted by, by their presence and know that he's faithful. We know that he will deliver us and that he will save us from our fears. As we close, I want to look briefly back at uh, verse 4. Back, back up in verse 4, it says, I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. Well, the holy hill that David is talking about there is the place in Jerusalem where sacrifices were made. So when God's people, the Israelites, sinned, they could go to the, the holy hill and they could make sacrifices. And this was a way that God, uh, God, had, God had made a way to, to deal with their sins, for their sins to be forgiven. And so when David says this, he, he cries out to the Lord in the midst of his fear, and he knows that God is a forgiving God. Well, about a thousand years later, Jesus, who shared God's glory, but came to earth out of love for his sinful people, would cry out to the Lord. In the midst of his fear, Jesus cries out to the Lord. Or, sorry, in the, uh, Jesus would cry out to the Lord. On the night before he went to the cross, uh, Jesus prayed on the Mount of Olives. And in Luke 24, it says that in, uh, being in an agony, he prayed, and his sweat became like drops of blood falling down to the ground. And the prayer that he prayed was, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus was scared in the garden, and he cried out to the Lord. And he answer, the answer that he received from God was that it was his will that he would go and he would fulfill his mission. So the next day, Jesus was crucified on the cross, taking on the full punishment that we deserve for our sin. Judgment was poured out on Jesus so that those who believe in him can be saved and can be delivered. Jesus followed the Father into and through his fear and was crucified as the perfect sinless sacrifice. And three days later, Jesus was raised to new life, achieving victory over death. So now, because of Jesus' death on the cross, we, can no longer, we no longer have to fear, fear the punishment of sin. And because of Jesus' resurrection, we can enjoy full communion with God. We have full assurance of grace and deliverance through Jesus. And when we have assurance of grace, we can be secure in the midst of our fears. Jesus' perfect love has cast out our greatest fears. Friends, in the midst of our fears, we can name our fears to the Lord, we can trust in the Lord, and we can wait for the Lord. We can cry out to the Lord knowing that he has already answered us. The Lord gives us security and assurance in the midst of our fears through the love of his son, Jesus. Let's pray together.